Today on the Smitty and Priya Show, I mean on Your Money, Your Wealth, plenty of financial concepts and acronyms to wrap your brains around. We're talking about accumulation, deaccumulation, dollar cost averaging, IRRROR, CAGR. Those are all ways of calculating rates of return on investments, by the way, as well as step up in basis, required minimum distributions. Oh, there's another acronym, RMD. Capital accumulation, life insurance plans, tax planning for new home buyers, spousal, social security benefits, and of course, those backdoor Roth conversions. But on YMYW, it's sometimes called the garage door or something. But first, let's talk about portfolio rebalancing during retirement when the market goes down. And then let's get to the fun stuff. Keggers. I'm producer Andy Last, and here are the hosts of Your Money, Your Wealth, Joe Anderson, CFP, and Big Al Clopine, CPA. We got Tom from Linwood, Linwood, Washington. Hey, Joe, Alan, and thoroughly enjoy your podcast and learned a lot. Keep up the good work. Um, apparently, he hasn't listened to this episode yet. <laughs> God, obviously, it's not out. But yeah, there will be. Okay. Or it may not make, maybe this won't make it. We'll see. Hot, hot start. This will all be best of. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on rebalancing stock and bond portfolio during the decumulation phase. I'm 57, my wife's 62, and we intend to retire in two to three years. Okay. Um, we have a portfolio consisting of pre-tax, brokerage, and Roth accounts. The accounts are allocated for a total return strategy with a target of 70 bonds. I mean, I'm sorry, 70% stocks, 30% bonds. We intend to hold one to two years of cash during retirement with the bond portfolio, accounting for around four years of our annual expenses. And while we've been working, we have been rebalancing the stock holdings based on percentage drift of the sector targets, as well as the 70-30 stock bond target. Well, Tom, he's getting sophisticated in his strategy here, Big Al. Yes. Uh, my, my question is, how we, should we start rebalancing the stock bond percentages in retirement? So he's pretty good on the accumulation phase, right? He's got right. those sector sure. rotations. He's got the 70-30 split. He's thinking, hey, we got a couple of years in cash. Uh, the bond portfolio is, is kind of holding on to about four years of our overall living expenses. Uh, but now when he starts taking money from the portfolio, does the strategy change? So he goes, our strategy during retirement is to draw down the cash and bond portfolio during market corrections or bear markets. My concern is during a prolonged downturn, the bonds could come less than the four years of living expenses if we rebalance back to the 70-30 target. What are your thoughts on rebalancing the stock bond portfolio during downturns while in retirement? Thanks for answering my question. Um, okay, Tom, really good question because this is key in regards to creating income in retirement. The, and he's right. Saving for retirement and then creating retirement income are two totally different things, right? So your investment strategy is different. Your tax strategy is probably a little bit different um, because now – you're not adding to the portfolio where volatile markets or, or long downturns in the market actually help your retirement out significantly because you're buying those really good companies that you had been at a lot cheaper price and your dollar cost averaging into the market. Let's say if you're saving into your 401k plan um, and then when the market recovers, your, your account recovers. 
But when you start taking money out of a, a retirement account or any brokerage account for them or any investment account, I should say, in a down market, right, it's reverse dollar cost averaging. And then that's where people get into trouble. And then that's when people run out of money. Because let's say if you lose 30%, right? I have $100,000. I lose 30% of that. But the next year I gain 30%. I still don't have my money back. And I I think, Alan, people don't understand that math. Yeah. And and the reason is because if let's just say 100,000, easy math, you lose 30%. So now you got 70,000. You gain 30%. 30% of 70,000 is 21,000. So now you got 91,000. So you've got to earn more like 40 or 45% to get back to even if you lose 30. That's part of the problem. And if you're taking money from the portfolio, right now you need a lot larger rate of return to get your money back. You do. Right. So if you're down 30 and you're taking 5% out to live off of, and then all of a sudden it's like, okay, well, it's so hard for me to recover in a down market as you're taking distributions. Right. So Tom's, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say it's it's a really good question because if he sticks with the 70-30, allocation, 70% stocks, 30% bonds. And let's say the market has a major decline. It means you're going to be selling some of your bonds to buy stocks because that's what you do. That's how you rebalance. And now all of a sudden you're not going to have, you know, five, six years in fixed income to cover your expenses. So, so I guess the way I would answer it is upon retirement, that, that could be an appropriate time to change your allocation because there's a life change. It's, we don't think it makes sense to change your allocation because of the market or because of a political event or something like that. But when your life situation changes, i.e. you're no longer accumulating, now you're deaccumulating, you might want to go a little bit more conservative just, just because of that. So that let's say you're 60-40 or even 50-50, just to use those examples. Now when you're rebalancing, you probably still have five, six, or even seven years, even in a down market in fixed income, which is kind of what you want, because you can let the stocks run their course. Eventually, they'll recover, but you've got plenty of money to live off of in the meantime. Right, because if he only has 30% of his his money in cash and fixed income, if there's a significant downturn in the overall market, right, he'll want to rebalance. And what rebalancing means is taking the safe money that's that hasn't gone down in value to buy those stocks that have gone down in value, right? So they're buying more shares. But as he's doing that, he's running out of liquid cash uh, to live off of because he doesn't want to sell his stocks when they're down. He wants to buy the stocks when they're down. And so I agree with you 100%, Al. He needs to look at the planning a little bit differently to say, all right, well, maybe I want not four years of safe money. Maybe it's closer to six or seven years of safer money. But then look at the stock allocation of the portfolio. Maybe he might want to take on a little bit more risk there. Because he might be all in large company growth stocks, but does it make sense to have an allocation to small value or smaller companies, emerging markets, things like that, that will give you a higher expected rate of return long term just because of the volatility and the risk nature of those stocks? Um, So he can have less stocks in the portfolio, but still shoot for a still solid rate of return in the overall portfolio. So great question, Tom. Hopefully that helps answer it. Um, If not, sorry call another show priya hey big al what the hell is this all about priya <laughs> well she's talking about keggers <laughs> yeah well i mean it's the wrong kind of keggers if it was then she'd be asking you yes. she's talking about a financial kegger 
Got it. Um, Big Al, Joe, and Andy, thanks for answering my first question in Podcast 289. Appreciate it very much. In that podcast, you were wondering if I was the intern who worked in your office. No, that was not me. And you asked about my dog's name, which is Henry. Priya and Henry. All right. I wonder if you call him Hank. (laughs) (laughs) This week, I have a simple but very confusing question. I'm trying to figure out the calculation or how to calculate the investment return and found these formula, uh, formulas commonly referred online. It's one, ROR, rate of return. So that's ending balance minus starting balance divided by starting balance. All right. You with me here, Al? Yep. Gotcha. I agree. ROR. With you. Yep. Uh, KGAR, <laughs> compound <laughs> annual growth rate. As opposed uh, to beer. It's not, not beer. I like the other kegger. Um, <laughs> IRR, internal rate of return, or any other formula. Rate of return looks simple and easy to use, but doesn't take into account the number of years. The kegger formula includes the number of years. IRR sounds very complicated. My, <laughs> my assumption is investing starting balance of $1,000 on 1-1-2018 and balance of Thirteen hundred dollars on twelve thirty one twenty nineteen. No dividends and no money has been withdrawn. For example, I get an ROR rate of return as thirty percent, a kegger of fourteen percent. Could you please clarify how to calculate the performance of this account? Looking forward to hearing your discussion and answer for my question in the next podcast. As always, very informative and fun podcast. Thanks. So, Priya. Getting into the weeds. <laughs> she just is a, just a little bit here. Well, our ROR rate of return that that just gives you from point A to point B what you made. With then you're right, uh, Priya. Without regard to a year. I mean, what if it takes you ten years to earn this? It, it wasn't that great a return, right? Or if it takes you fifty years for your investment to go up thirty percent, you didn't really do that well. So that's that's a that's kind of a rudimentary measurement. The the Kager. Compound and annual growth rate is definitely better because now you're now you're looking at years and you're figuring out okay what's the compound annual growth rate each year. In other words, if I would have got fourteen percent for two years in a row, right, then I would have ended up with an extra three hundred dollars on my thousand dollars. So let's think about that. So the thirty percent on the return uh, rate of return over two years is over two years, and if you divide that by two years, you would get fifteen percent. So you would expect, well, why isn't it fifteen percent? And the answer is because that first fifteen percent that you earned in year one, then you have earnings on earnings. That's compound interest. So it's it's a lower percentage. So you don't need to make as much to get to the thirty because you're making money on money. Making money on money. Now internal rate of return is you can explain that a lot of ways, but I'll keep it simple. Basically, it's the same thing as a Kager, except it's computed usually monthly, or it could be daily, right? But usually on your financial calculators, you do it on a monthly basis. So so the, the internal rate of return is even a little bit lower because now you're compounding each month instead of compounding once a year. Yeah, where you would want to use like internal rate of return would be... Um, let's say for those of you that have a pension and you would get a lump sum of X or a, um, a, a, a monthly, you know, pension payment of Y. And so you would say, okay, well, what's really the internal rate of return of the monthly pension payments? Does it equal the, the lump sum or is it higher? 
if it's equal or higher, well, then you would take the payment. If it's equal or lower, right, then you would uh, probably take the lump sum. So, uh, yeah, you know, when it comes to some of these annuity products, we look at IRRs. When we look at life insurance, death benefit, we look at the internal rate of return. So let's say if I had shortened life expectancy and I had a life insurance policy and it's like, well, you know, do I want to keep this or not or whatever? And then it's like, well, if you keep it and you pay X amount of premiums and if you pass away, let's say at age 80, your internal rate of return is X. But if you live until 90, your internal rate of return is a lot lower. So, yeah, you know, it, it, it's certain things like that is where all of these come in handy. It just depends on when you want to use them. Yeah, I think so, too. I, I used to use and still on real estate investments, internal rate of return is really handy because you're looking at cash flow, you're looking at appreciation, you're looking at, in some cases, potential tax benefits and pay down of mortgage. And you're combining those all together to figure out what did you start with as an investment and what did you end up with? Let's say if you sold it five, 10 years down the road, minus taxes, that'll tell you your internal rate of return. And sometimes those are computed uh, before tax and sometimes they're computed after tax. It just gives you a sense of what you're making on an investment. <laughs> Thanks for the question, Priya. Um, <laughs> she's definitely the, uh, not um, the intern. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, the, the intern didn't know that. This <laughs> okay, <good. laughs> uh, love the intern, um, but Priya's pretty smart there. I like it. Learn ways to grow your investments in all market environments, how to avoid poor investment decisions, and how to protect yourself from risk. Download eight timeless principles of investing for free from the podcast show notes just before the transcript of today's episode. It'll help you feel more confident in your portfolio, even in times like these when the markets are volatile. Click the link in the description of today's episode in your podcast app to go to the show notes and download eight timeless principles of investing and ask Joe and your money questions. This show wouldn't be a show without Schmitty. Swear to God, Schmitty, you're killing me. Every week, there's like... Yeah, I know, right? Okay. Um, hi, Andy, Joan, Big Al. I really appreciate all your help. I have a couple more questions. Imagine that. Um, I li- <laughs> First is about step-up and basis. I have a brokerage account that is titled to my living trust. When I got married, I updated the living trust where my wife is now the sole beneficiary of the brokerage account. Um, so it begins with the trust and not a TOD. So does my wife get a full step up in basis? So he switched it from a transfer of death of brokerage and he just now titled, uh, Schmitty's trust for the benefit of his beautiful bride. So it, I guess it depends on how it was established, but I would say in most cases, yes, but I'm not an attorney. Yeah. That, let me just chime in there. Oregon is not a community property state, but uh, it's it sounds like maybe it's a separate asset, you know, separate property asset potentially. So if that's the case, it could be a full step up. Although I'm not sure if you put it in your living trust and if she's part of it, maybe it taints it. Yeah, that's a that's really a legal question. That's over our heads. But no, it's, it's it, I guess it's if he dies, right, and she's the sole beneficiary, of course she would get a step up in basis. It's just a look through see through living trust. It's just a not not necessarily. If 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 she's if not, she's joint if, owner, if, if, and it's, if it's not um. Okay, go ahead. 
Yeah, well, I was going to say, if, yeah, if she's, yeah, if she's a joint owner, and I don't know if he puts the property in her, his trust or is she in the trust? I don't know. But if they're, if she's a joint owner, then she only gets a half step up in basis because Oregon is not a community property state. In California, she would get a full step up in basis because it's a community property state. But when you go from transfer on death to trust I, i'm not sure if that taints well, all it does is avoid probate as long as it's titled appropriately it's going to get a full step up in basis right so you don't believe that um let's see i can tell you answer me sometimes when you're like right you're like well, well, i don't know you're you're hesitant well, because he's married, it's it, it, it doesn't go through probate when you're married. It right. Well, no. He's, yeah, he's. I don't, <laughs> <laughs> so she's got to go to the courthouse, please. I really did marry him. <laughs> okay, so he named his wife the beneficiary of the trust. So it depends on. Is it like a separate property trust? Is what you're thinking? Yeah, correct? that that's maybe that's you're thinking, you're, you're getting more complex than needs. This is Schmitty we're talking about, <laughs> <laughs> and and he apparently rides a Harley. We found out, right? So Schmitty gets married and goes, "All right, honey, let's get a living trust. Let's establish the living trust." And right, and he's the beneficiary on her assets. She, he's she's the beneficiary on his assets. Maybe these are separate property assets or was it in an irrevocable trust? I think it's just the standard living trust, right? He's the trustee. I would imagine she's the trustee of the living trust as well. And then they're the, she's the beneficiary. If he dies, she would get a step up in basis and it would avoid probate um, if it was separate property. So I, I'm not sure that's right. <laughs> they, they do avoid probate. But if it's his trust and it's his property and she inherits it, I think maybe it's a full step up. I'm not sure what happens when you're married. See, we're not attorneys, so we don't really know. If it's if it's jointly owned, then she only gets a half step up in basis because it's not a community property state. That's what I was trying to say. Got it. So, All right. So he's got a 401k. He's going to title the living trust as the beneficiary, or should he just name the wife? I would just name the wife. Uh, it gets too complex if you name a trust because there's, there's requirements with a living trust. Uh, and it's your wife, it's your spouse. So name her and then the trust later because there's no kids. Um, it, it will make it easier depending, because there's a delivery requirement needs to be a look-through, see-through trust. There's other things. Um, if you have other beneficiaries besides the wife on the trust, um, it, it, it could tend to get a little bit sticky. So let's say the trust, um, the 99% of the IRA is the wife and the 1% is a, is a charity you could run into some issues there. So I would just name the wife first beneficiary, then the trust as the contingent. Um, so thanks again, Schmitty, for the for the great uh, questions. Uh, Schmitty, the regular listener, comes uh, to us each and every week with about 15 questions that Al and I usually have a tough time answering. We uh, fumble over them. We, 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 we do our best. Uh, but, but he gave us a review. He gave us, a, he wanted six stars um, because there was a the guy a long time in China or something like that, deducted one star from our podcast because of the banter that we have. Yeah, apparently we're still too silly or something. But my squeeze and I enjoy the banter. Squeeze, <laughs> Schmitty. You gotta love Schmitty. <laughs> Please continue with the derails. P.S. All the guys down here at the Bait Shack. Think you're all a riot. 
I'd love to go to the bait shack there in Roseburg, Oregon. <laughs> I have would a couple too. pops with Schmitty and the Squeeze. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a band. <laughs> that should be the name of a band. <laughs> That's the name of our next podcast. Yeah, Schmitty right? and the Squeeze. Schmitty <laughs> like and that. the Squeeze. Uh, Stanley writes in from Midlothian, Virginia. He turned 72 in 2021 and will need to take my RMD. All right. Must I take it in 2021 or can I postpone it to early 2022? I understand if that is possible that I would need to take a second RMD before December 31st, 2022. Or did that option disappear? Dis- like vanish. Yeah. <laughs> you never know. The CARES <laughs> Act, the SECURE Act. What are they Dis- doing to us, Jim? <laughs> you know, we got the Disappear Act you know, coming up soon. Uh, also, if I can postpone the 2021 RMD to early 2022, may I convert traditional IRA money to a Roth without the IRS considering it an excess contribution? Thank you for your efforts on behalf of your audience. All right, Stanley, a couple of things that you're, you're right on and a couple of things that you're off just a smidge. Um, I'll take a stab and now if you want to rebuttal, that's cool. So must I take it at 2021? He turned 72 in 2021. Um, if he turns 72 in 2021, he can postpone to 2022. Um, he can, um, his required beginning date would be April 1st of the following year. Uh, so he is correct there. So he can postpone his required minimum distribution. Um, and what that is, is that it's a mandate by law that you have to start taking dollars from the 401k plan or IRAs or whatever. Now at age 72, it was 70 and a half, but the SECURE Act pushed it out to age 72. Um, so he's looking to postpone it. But yes, you're correct. You need to take two distributions uh, by the end of 2022. So you have to make up for 2021, and then you have to take your 2022 required distribution. Um So can he do a conversion um, in 2021? The answer is yes, Uh, but it's not an excess contribution. It's just a conversion. So um, he might be thinking if he converts the RMD, that would be an excess contribution, which would be subject to a 6% penalty per year that that the the conversion is in. But as long as he postpones his required, it's based on the required beginning date. The required beginning date is April 1st of the following year. I completely agree. I think that the fact that you don't have to take an RMD in 2021 means that you can do a Roth conversion without a problem. 2022, totally different story because now you have to take two RMDs. Joe, I believe that he would have to take both RMDs before he did a Roth conversion in 2022. Would you agree with that? Yeah, without question. So he could do the conversion in 2021, but if he does a conversion before the required distributions, the RMDs have to come out first before the, then that would be an excess contribution. Yeah. So in 2022, you do your first RMD and your second RMD, then you can do Roth conversions. 2021, you're, you're, you're good because you don't have a requirement yet. Yeah, there is no requirement. Same with 2020 because they got rid of RMDs. So if he was 72 or 73 this year, you could do a conversion of your required distribution because you don't have to take one. Right. Um, so Stanley, let's, so he is, so he has the next few years to do conversions, but yeah, 2022, he's going to postpone it. He would have to take both RMDs before he did a conversion. If he wanted to do a conversion in 2022, Scott writes in, um, he goes, Hey Joe, 
Oh no, he goes, hey Andy Al Angio. That's right. He just skips right to himself. <laughs> you notice that, Al? He does, right? Uh, thanks for always putting on informative and humorous content. Nothing better than learning, laughing, all in the same podcast. I previously emailed about potentially converting my employer match traditional 401k to Roth, which you spoke about, but did not advise. That's right, Scott. We don't give advice here. Just chat about it. Um, which you spoke about to stay the course to have some tax diversification in retirement. Now I'm curious if it would make sense to switch over my future contributions to traditional from Roth. Currently, although maybe I should wait until after the election for more tax clarity. Um, I currently max out my contributions to my Roth 401k and my backdoor Roth IRA combined value of 160,000. Have a traditional 401k from employer match. Uh, There's about 45,000 in there. And have a brokerage account, $30,000 that kicks out tax-free income. Muni type investment. Also, as, after listening to your show, I learned about the mega backdoor option, which I plan to utilize this year. Just an additional $5,000 for this year. Mega backdoor. That's the garage door. No. And we lost Andy again. We did, so we're probably not on. Hold on. I think we are. We're still going. Okay. We're going to keep going here. Yep. The show must go on, right? The show, yeah, with or without Andy. <laughs> um, so he currently... Let's see. I currently sit at the 35% federal tax bracket, income of 205, and about 6% for New Jersey state tax. I expect to be in that tax return until 2023. So before moving to the next bracket, I'm single to be married in 2022. A couple years there, Scott. All right. I'm currently 30 years old. It's a little young, Scott, to get married. Maybe you should hold off. <laughs> couple more <laughs> you give me some advice there i'll definitely give you advice there hold well, on I got, I got married at 31 that was a good age for me yeah i'm in my 40s and still loving every <laughs> minute of my single life <laughs> given my current tax bracket do you think it makes sense for me to switch contributions to traditional for now or should i say the course and just have my employer match build my traditional uh, account exposure thanks again for all you do you make the midweek commute Quite enjoyable. All right, Scott from Jersey. So I think, Al, you you were telling him, I don't know, maybe go pre-tax, have some tax diversification. He's going all Roth. He's like Mr. Roth. Yeah. He's, he's 30 years old. He's got 160000 maxing that thing out. He's going to do the mega backdoor garage door Roth. Um, he's got $200,000 of income. He's 30. He's sitting in the 35% federal tax bracket. Um, it probably does make sense for him to switch to go to pre-tax to get the tax deduction. So he, so he's single and, uh, let's see his income of 205,000 plus. I don't have the tables in front of me, but I, I think that's the 32% bracket, but anyway, it's pretty close to the 35, uh, either way it's, it's a higher bracket. Yeah. You could use a little bit more diversification. So, you, you know, it, it's almost a toss up, Joe. I'm not sure how much information we had the first time we, we answered this question, but at age 30, making that kind of money, uh, chances are he'll be making a lot more money later, perhaps, and, and maybe you'll be in higher brackets. On the other hand, if he gets married, uh, the, the top of the, uh, 
24% bracket goes from about 170,000 to about 325. So there's more room, but maybe his, his future wife makes a lot of money. You know, we, we don't know. There's, there's a lot of information uh, needed to really assess this properly. But, but I, I guess the general rule I would say is when you're young and potentially lower brackets, although I guess Scott's actually in a pretty high bracket, you kind of want to favor Roth. And as you start making more and as tax rates go up, because they're kind of at all time lows right now, then you might want to switch more to the pre-tax. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's two rules of thumb um, that I usually look at, right? You can do the scientific way of saying, okay, well, you're in the 32% tax bracket. It's a pretty high bracket. Might make sense to get the tax deduction, but are you going to save the tax savings that you get by putting it into pre-tax? The answer is usually no. And the fact, right, if you put it in Roth, you're never, ever going to pay tax on those dollars again. It's going to compound tax-free. And then when Scott, because he's a good saver, right, Um, all of that money, he takes the the uncertainty of future tax rates just off the table. So I don't know. I'm... It's, it's, some people, well, if it's a flat tax, could be lower, all this other stuff. I mean, I guess yeah. you could have you could have left some stuff on the table. Um, yeah. But at the end of the day, it's hindsight. It's it, you're, you're, you're now you're retired and you don't have to worry about it versus saying, hey, I saved a couple of bucks. Now I'm screwed. Right. I got yeah. all this money in taxes. I, now, and it depends upon the age, too. So I would say if Scott was 62 with the same exact fat, fact pattern. He doesn't have that much in a 401k, so I'd, I'd get the tax deduction because he'll be in a lower bracket. But, uh, you know, as it stands right now, you could you could argue either way. Andy, you're back. I made it. <laughs> yes. It seems to be a, a weekly thing. My Internet has to drop while we're in the middle of recording. So well, how far did you get? What did I miss? You didn't, you didn't miss much. Um, <laughs> you didn't miss much. All right, Scott. Well, good work. Keep up the good work there. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. Uh, the pre the, the mega backdoor, I, I think what that is is that he might have the ability to put more after tax dollars into the 401k plan. If you could do that, absolutely do it. Make sure everyone that's listening to this, talk to your HR to see how much money that you can actually put into your 401k plan. Um, because there are some plans that allow after tax contributions once you've fully funded the pre-tax or Roth component of the 401k plan those after-tax dollars can immediately be converted to a Roth IRA. So that's the mega back door or the garage door, the big bad door, the big back door, whatever you want to call it. Whatever kind of door you want to put on your Roth conversion, it's important to know you're making the right move before you make the move. You can get a deeper dive into your overall financial picture by scheduling a free financial assessment via video call with Joe and Big Al's team at Pure Financial Advisors. But you need to do it now before the calendar gets all booked up as the end of the year is looming large. Oh, and did I mention that this free financial assessment is free? It is. Click the link in the description of today's episode in your podcast app. Go to the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com and click the get an assessment button to schedule yours. Coming up, another question from Priya because we can't keep up. But first, let's talk about life insurance. You got a couple um, videos or what, what the hell are they? Um, um, Voicemails. Voicemails. <laughs> We're living in the age of Zoom, Andy. So everything now is like a video call. Well, this one is a video that you're just going to have to listen to. Got it. And, uh... <laughs> Hi, guys and Andy. This is John. I have a question. My company recently 
decided to offer a capital accumulation program. My understanding is that I am allowed to put money into this plan tax-free. The growth is tax-free. And when I withdraw the money at retirement, it is a loan against an insurance policy and also tax-free. Is this on the up and up or is this something I should pass on? Thank you. Okay. So? So what's a capital accumulation yeah, program? This sounds like a good question for you, Joe. Well, it's, it's, it's a life insurance contract disguised as an investment. Uh, they, I don't been, know. Remember those? Been, yeah, they've been around a long time. Called different things at different times. But this is offered same, through same an idea. employer? Yeah, some, it's probably a small employer. Um, 12. Um, God, it's been a while since we used to see all those plans back in the day, Al. Um, anyway, but it's. So here it is, but, but I don't understand what, what he's saying. So he's going to be able to get a tax deduction to put money into this plan. It's going to grow tax deferred. And when he pulls the money out, he's going to take a loan from the insurance policy. Uh, and a loan is not a taxable event, so it's tax-free. So, Well, he's, the, he's saying that he can put the money into tax-free. I, I don't know if that means tax deduction or not. There's not a tax cost. And there's not a tax cost because I think he's already paid tax on the money. I'm but believing I, that you, you think it's a deduction through payroll. Correct. Oh, yes. Um, uh, 12B1I plans are God, I, I, for some, I'm just having a brain fart today. Um, so that's normal for most days. So it's nothing new here, <laughs> uh, but I am familiar with some of these plans and okay. you know, they're, they're, they're carve out executive plans and things like that. Okay. So, I don't know. Shouldn't stay away from it. Probably. I don't, I, I would not put my money into this. Um, I would have to look at the contract and how big of, um, you know, how, how, how many contributions are going into this thing because it has to be really fully funded for it to work out. Right. Because once you start taking dollars out of this capital appreciation or accumulation program, I mean, it's still life insurance at the end of the day. And who is it underwritten on? Who is the, the insured, right? Um, the beneficiary is probably the company, but who, who's, it, who's it underwritten on? Does John need to go through a, you know, you, you get a free physical uh, with this capital accumulation program. You know, someone's going to come out, check your blood, blood pressure. But it's actually, you know, an exam to see if you are, um, um, get you know for your life insurance. So, I, I mean, I went to this sales training one time. This is back in the day, right? Because they would call these pro, um, th like these super Roths, giant Roths, super Roths. Yeah, remember the super Roth? Yeah, and I, I when I was a young CPA before you were in the business, I, I heard an advisor call it a private pension plan. Yes, I mean they still call it a private pension plan. Do they? Okay. They, I mean they call it all sorts of BS. Right? right. But the super Roth was the best. And then it was like, yeah, you know, and you also get a free physical. It's <laughs> <laughs> right? a side benefit. Uh, it's a little side benefit of the super Roth. So it's, is it a Roth IRA? Well, yeah. I mean, but it, it's different than a Roth IRA because you don't have income limits and there's no contribution limits and you can put as much as you want in here and you get a free exam. Um, that's life insurance. 
And so that's exactly what this is. So, John, I don't know, with the capital accumulation program, it's if you get the tax deduction, um, it grows tax deferring. If you can pull the money out via loan, um, you know, there's cost to the loan. There's cost to the insurance. Uh, you would have to run all of those numbers to see if it's really worth it from the, uh, the tax benefit because that's how it's getting sold, right? And you can tell how we explained it. Tax-free going in, tax-free growth. And then when I pull it out, it's tax-free via loan. So he's getting, you know, those are the benefits of it. But I would want to get into details a lot more to, to see if I would put my money into this. Um, it's It usually always sounds good on the surface. But with all insurance, you know, that's why it's insurance. There's trade-offs. Um, so what are the trade-offs that you're getting? And, and what other savings vehicles are you taking advantage of? Are you putting money into a Roth IRA? Are you putting money into a 401k? Have you maxed out those plans? Do you have money in a brokerage account? How much debt do you have? Um, you know, so there's a lot of other questions that I would want to make sure that you look at before you start, you know, throwing a couple of bucks into this plan. Yeah. And I think, Joe, from my standpoint, I don't know as near as much about these as you do, but I, I have to say that uh, in general, uh, it seems like a lot of the people that get into these plans are sorry they did. Now, maybe this is different because there's a tax deduction and maybe it's a, a better one. But I, I would say as a general rule, I, the people that I know that have gotten into these kind of wish they hadn't. So I don't know. Andy, maybe it's, is it a 412i? Look, Google that real quick. 412i, um, I believe. Are they, and those are still allowed? Remember they, um, they took yeah. some of those away? Uh, of course. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, you know, a lot of times how they're, they're positioned, they just talk about the tax code itself. It's like, well, have you looked at a private pension under section 412i of the IRS revenue code? It's like, wow, that sounds pretty... <laughs> That sounds it pretty sound cool. Clever, right? <laughs> Apparently, my internet can handle us actually recording, but it can't handle handle finding out what four twelve I is. Okay, well, no, I'm just that that that, that just popped in my head. Yeah. Um, I think that's what this is referring to. We can kind of look it up and and, and get back to uh, John. So, I appreciate the question. If you do have uh, money questions, you, you get really terrible answers like we're giving them today. I'm telling you that right now. It's like, I don't know, step up in basis. I don't even know what the hell that is. That's well, why it's I just say, suggestions and not actual I, advice. I can say we'll give it our we'll give it our, our best. Hey, we'll give college, it college try. try. Yeah, yeah, you got it. We'll give it a college try. So, all right. We got um, Priya uh, from Fallbrook, Fallbrook, California. Uh, she writes in, hey, I'm almost 63, just became a homeowner, partnered with my fiance. Uh, I put $100,000 and he put 60 down as a down payment. I took the money out of my 401k plan, uh, which I have to pay tax on, and my withholding was 44%. Question for you is, why can't I take $10,000 out for first-time homebuyer? Well, um, it sounds like she is a first-time homebuyer. Well, um, she can, um, but she's 63. The, the reason for the first time home buyers not to eliminate the tax is to eliminate the penalty, penalty for early withdrawal, but she's already over 59 and a half. So that doesn't even apply. Um, I, I think, I think Joe, I just, I just want to say some, sometimes people think they can take the 10,000 out tax free. That's false. You can take it out penalty free. You still have to pay the tax. How the withhold work by the end of the year, time to do tax. Um, 
Well, if, if you withheld 44%, I would imagine that's probably enough withholding. Um, but it, it, here's the problem. You took the $100,000 out of a retirement account to put as a down payment on a house. So that down payment didn't cost you 100000 It cost you about 144000 right? And so we see this mistake all the time in regards to pulling dollars of that magnitude out of a retirement account to buy a house, to pay down debt, or you know, to pay down a mortgage. And then next year, they, they just find themselves into a, a larger tax issue, depending on if they withheld enough. Um, it sounds like she would, I've never seen someone withhold that much. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a lot. That'll be federal and state, but still, that's a lot. Usually you see 20%, you know, federal, yeah. maybe 8% state. Something, um, yeah, something like that. Uh, she does have a question. Is there any tax break during the pandemic? Well, uh, I suppose if it's a, if it's a coronavirus distribution, Joe, she could pull the money out and then pay the tax slowly over three years. Yeah. So um, Priya, do you have, did, did you get diagnosed with COVID? Did your fiance get diagnosed? I went, I went, does a fiance qualify? I know spouse does. Significant other? Uh, don't uh, have the rules, rule books in front of me. Yeah, I, I don't think it says that. I think it says spouse. I but, I, um, but maybe if, if, if Priya was you know, affected in any way financially, you maybe furloughed, laid off, uh, lost wages. Had a so, uh, Joe, I think that, that's where a fiance could come into play. If, if you were sharing rent or mortgage, in this case, probably rent because she's about to buy, then the, the uh, fiance gets laid off. They got less, you know, they can't afford their bills. That, that, that would probably qualify. So, yeah, so she's a homeowner, but it costs her normal leg to do it. Uh, so, yeah, I would look into this uh, coronavirus-related distribution. Um, then you could pay the tax over three years where you could spread the tax out over a, a time period. Or if you have other capital that you could potentially use, um, you, you might want to pay that $100,000 back and they come up with 100000 somewhere else. But likelihood of someone have liquid capital of that much um, outside of a 401k plan, maybe not. She wants um, to know, should she put her house in, in a trust, uh, in the trust? And the answer is yes. If you have a living trust, you should put your house in that. That, that means that it avoids probate uh, upon your passing. All right. Let's go to Amanda from Riverside. Let's go. It, uh, if I draw Social Security benefit at age 62 for $1,000 a month, my husband's full benefit at age 67 would be $3,200 a month. If my husband wait to draw his Social Security benefit at age 70 for $4,000 a month, would I be entitled to switch over to the spousal benefit for $2,000 a month, or would I be entitled to $1,600 a month? Thank you very much for your help. I truly enjoy your show. So Amanda's going to take her Social Security at age 62 at $1,000. Right. Also, benefit is not based on um, – the survivor benefit is going to be based on Amanda's husband's benefit at his death. So if she takes it at $1,000 at age 62, her spousal benefit is going to be based on her husband's benefit at age 67, which is $3,200 a month. And if you take $3,200 a month, divide that by 50 is what, Al? $1,600? Yep. Right. So, but if she's taking her benefit at age 62, she's not going to receive the full 50. 
she's going to receive 33 so it's going to match up to $1,000 a month anyway. If I had a calculator, I could get really tight on that. But yeah, I'm I, think, I, th I, I think that's close. I think the two key concepts is the, the spousal benefit is one half of your spouse's benefit at full retirement age, not age 70. Number one. Number two is if you take it early, it's going to be a reduced benefit. So, um, so you, you can't game the system that way, Amanda. So if you take it early at 62, um, they're going to look at your benefit. Once your husband claims the spousal, um, his benefit, you could change to the spousal benefit, but it would still be a reduced benefit because you claimed your benefit early. So thanks for the question. All right. Thanks, Big Al. Thanks, Andy. We'll see you, you all next week. Show's got your money well. Thank you, Smitty and Priya and everyone else for your money questions. You all definitely make YMYW what it is. And I'm glad that you enjoyed the derails because even though there were plenty of them in today's episode, I still got a few more for you momentarily. Your Money, Your Wealth is presented by Pure Financial Advisors. Click the Get an Assessment button in the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com or call 888-994-6257 for your free financial assessment. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. I wasn't sure where Roseburg, Oregon was. I looked it up. It's uh, it's south of Eugene. My parents used to have a, co a condo in Newport, Oregon, which is on the coast, which is north of Eugene. But uh, anyway, I know the area somewhat. Newport. Is that what you said? Newport? Or Newport. Newport, Oregon. Uh-huh. Okay. If you, if you think about Oregon State, which is in Corvallis, and you go directly west to the ocean, that's where Newport is. Got it. Where's, um, Oregon. Uh, is there University like a famous, Oregon? Oregon? <laughs> is there a famous beach over there? Uh, well, there's, yeah, there's lots of them. I mean, there's famous, fa famous. Yeah. Like with big rocks where it looks like where they film the Goonies. Yeah, that's probably, I don't know if that's Bandon or a lot of beaches have rocks like that. Oh, do they? Yeah. Okay. All right. Good chat. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, now back to <laughs> do, do, do you know where Oregon is? <laughs> no, never heard of it. <laughs> Uh, I know you. I know you went there. You went. You went to Cannon Beach, I think. Right? Yes. Yeah. Then, thank you, Al. Yeah, that's what you're trying to think of. <laughs> yes, I don't know it if it's was. famous or not, but you went there. Mike, does that make it famous? I just yes. googled famous Oregon beaches, and Cannon is the first one to come up. So. Yes, well, there, Cannon, there Cannon go. Beach, because there it looks go. like that's where they filmed the Goonies, and it had like nice little quaint breweries and. Uh, Got it. Walk, yeah. It yeah, I remember you going. Yeah, it was a good time. That's. I'm no. glad you knew how to pronounce that because I didn't. I am, uh, I'm in awe, Joe. You just rattled that off like you knew what you are doing. Yeah, you, you know why? Because I played a golf course in Chicago called Midlothian. Oh, <laughs> there uh, had to be some reason. I, I would have not known what to say. Yeah, the, the U.S. Open was held there back in, like, I don't know, 1910. Uh, so, um, yeah, I played that course, and so that's... I, I Adam. Yeah, I can't say it really simple words, but Midlothian, it just rolls yeah, right no, off. No problem. Yeah, right. <laughs> You're right there. Friend it's the Priya. Priya and Smitty show. It is. I like Priya. Well, I think this is a different Priya because there was another Priya and 
I'm seeing um, Kagar's in, in this one, and I don't think the other Priya knew what Kagar meant. So I'm pretty uh, sure you're right about that. Right. Uh, yeah, speaking of reviews, we got uh, Mark. This is the number one podcast for financial information. John Big Al are to the point while infusing some humor on the subject. Highly recommend it. Wow. Very cool. You got any bad ones? Well, well the one, the guy that says I, I come off like a... Well, that was a five-star review. One terrible cologne. But he, liked, says, he still liked it. Joe comes on a little strong at first, like an extra spray of cologne. But boy, is he knowledgeable and humorous. And Al, you're the perfect straight guy. Damn straight. <laughs> there we go. 